0: This is the thing about you, is you don't know about the future, bro. You don't understand the future.
1: No, I like companies that make money. That's that's pretty much all it is.
0: Yeah, Twilio makes gobs and gobs and gobs of money in the future. This podcast contains the arguably witty banter of two friends, Skippy and Doodles, that like to debate about investing. The content is intended to be entertaining and for informational purposes only, not investment advice. You should do your own research and consult a financial professional before using any of the information in this podcast, and especially before investing. I woke up and there was whiteness on the ground, bro. <laughs> Picked the wrong spot
1: to live. It looks beautiful by my house. Oh my Trust goodness. That. Ugh. Winter. I just ask you, actually, I'll get to that in a second. I, I'm having a tough morning, you know? for those who don't know we record fairly early sometimes it's tough to get out of bed and then i thought of our buddies in the philippines and costa rica and sweden and i said all right i'll hop on with doodles
0: and we'll make some joy here you ready to make some go. joy you got to be for the people always got to be for the people no i don't want to make any joy i want to argue well no what i mean
1: what the people tell me brings up joy is when i cut you down so here it goes. <laughs> there you go it has yet to happen i saw this chart this week I, I saw this chart, okay. and I've been digesting it for a while, really thinking about it, deep in my mentals. Okay. And it's the Twilio stock chart.
0: Oh, yeah. Beautiful, right? <laughs>
1: it's bad, Diggles. It is bad. <laughs> w- when were you? <laughs> Was it 12 months ago? You're going, oh, man, I liked some Twilio text messaging. And now, look, that chart is scary.
0: Should I we pull it am. up? I'm still loving it. Yeah, I'm pulling up you're, right you're now. You're still liking it? Yeah, yeah. What what's there to like, man? Come on. This is the thing about you is you don't know about the future, bro. You don't understand the future. <laughs> no,
1: I like companies that make money. That's that's pretty much all it is.
0: Yeah, Twilio makes gobs and gobs and gobs of money in the future. <laughs> do you, Do you want to give uh, just
1: a visual overview via audio of what that Twilio chart looks like?
0: the chart so the chart starts if you go back to the beginning of time of this chart what you have is you have a beautiful you have a little stagnation then a beautiful increase of a little bit and then this pop-off top-off during the the pandemic during the pandemic you got this pop-off top-off this giant went up like four or five x then in the fall of of 2021 as doth come to many a NASDAQ stock. It starts this campaign of downward trajectory. I'm talking some, like, Bunker Hill cannons rolling down that joint. And it went down about 80 85%, roughly. Once it did that, then it went down another 20%, roughly. And <laughs> so it's sitting... <laughs> If it's the, sitting if the bump. downfall
1: is so significant. you got to break it up into multiple steps,
0: like, oh, it <laughs> went down fifty percent. and then it went down fifty percent. And then, guess what? It went down fifty percent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that that's what that's what gets me exciting because I, so I loved as an organization as the the promise of what this could be. I've enjoyed Twilio for a while. And what I said during the pandemic times was, I'm excited for this stock to, lose 80 plus percent in value so i can own it and that happened and i think the price that it's sitting at right now for with future growth potential in mind is a good price for me i'm not telling any of y'all to jump up in here Twilio's still losing money it's heading toward profitability mostly on a non-gap basis because it got that stock-based compensation nonsense up in check but i'm excited about the stock i'm so glad you're excited because when i typed twilio stock price
1: into the google machine the first headline that came up was kathy wood says ai is highly deflationary and her top picks include twilio and uipath so you're riding with greatness here guess no she's riding with me she's riding with me (laughs) she's been listening to the pod
0: again and got this idea from you i'm okay if kathy wood wants to ride with me i'm not riding with kathy though i tell you that much right now because she just it's kind of like she walks past the roulette table and just throws the chips, not even looking at what she's doing right there. I don't, I don't need that. Twilio is a calculated bet on the, on the perspective of Dougal's, but I did, you, you laughed at me, but I did tell you, this is legit, that I think that it's the next couple quarterly releases are an important, they're important for me because it is the trajectory that I want Twilio to be on so that I can have faith of where it's going to be in three to five years it's a it's a pivotal moment, so we'll see we'll see, but right now I got concentrations going on there yeah uh, only only
1: half trying to be a jerk here the what the I have the five year plot up in front of me what it really did is it went from seventy four bucks a share all the way up to four hundred and thirty five bucks a share, and now it's at fifty. It's been as low as forty one this year you're like. You seem to be rolling with this surprisingly well.
0: Yeah, because you and I both, no, you and I both are not in Twilio. That's not a thing that you would get into. I understand that. But you and I both are long-term investors. That doesn't mean that everything that we hold, we're going to hold for the long-term, but we think about our general holdings of portfolio over the long-term. And Twilio is not a short-term hold for me. This is a, it's one of my potentially longest-term holds if, the thesis that I have for it continues to to show that it it could uh, mm-hmm. take place. So I get excited. I bought in the 40s. I when it hit like in the 70s, I bought. When it went out to the 60s, I bought. When it was in the 50s, I bought. When it was in the 40s, I bought. This is this is a position that I am accumulating right now. So it's sitting. Basically, it, you have an issue. It would, would like
1: would we need the one eight <laughs> hundred
0: gambling hotline here. <laughs> if there's a one eight hundred Twilio. Specifically for the Twiliotics, out the Twilla I will be all Twilla yeah, I got oh, a little, man. you know, I got a little problem, but I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna keep watching it because, as we talked about before, you should check your thesis sometimes. And so I'm still excited about this, very excited.
1: Love it. Appreciate you uh, rolling up with my, the punches there. So, do you want to talk millionaires or in the U.S. or?
0: The guy that says we have no free will. <laughs> I want to talk to start. I want to talk millionaires. There's this, this post, Wall Street Journal post. Never mind the 1%. Many millionaires are where wealth is growing fastest. This is from Josh Zumbrun, as I assume. Zumbrun, something like that. That's how you assume you pronounce his name. And as the headline says, There's often talk about the 1% and how over the pandemic times, the 1%'s wealth has skyrocketed at the detriment of others. But if you look at the data, and last year, the Federal Reserve ran its consumer finance survey, which it does, I think, every three years. And what that showed is that there's this this group that's more like the 80th to 90th percentile. That's where like the mini millionaires come into play that has really surged the most. Fascinating. It is fascinating.
1: And they so the first caveat whenever you look at numbers like this is average wealth isn't very representative of things. And we'll talk a lot of averages here, but we'll also talk medians. Uh the reason for that is just if someone has if we're talking about the 55 to 65 core cohort and someone has 10 billion bucks, what does that do to the average? It skews it massively for exactly. But these people The article kind of calls mini-millionaires, I think is the term they use. They're growing pretty rapidly. There's a lot of millionaires these days. 21% of all households, that's from memory, let me verify, are now millionaires. That's crazy
0: to me. Yeah, there's an age component that's important here too, where we also have a population that has been aging. And so when you have the boomer population at the size that it is right now, you're going to have more people that have accumulated wealth. One of the things that I found to be on that age trajectory, one of the things I found to be interesting in this piece was also was also that it was showing that when you look at people that are like in their 20s, 30s, I think was really the age group. It's something closer to like 5% of households. I'm doing this off memory, too. We can look it up in a second that are millionaires, but they are likely to then become more 20% or so um, percent of them should be millionaires by the time they get to 55 to 60. So age is an important factor, too. Oh, completely. So under
1: 35, it's only like 2% of households are millionaires. Something like that. Okay, there you go. Um, And the definition of millionaire here is basically net worth. So total assets minus total liability. For a lot of households, the largest asset is going to be equity in their home, which has increased rapidly. So if home prices pull back significantly, there's a potential that this figure pulls back because it really went from like Uh, Median net wealth for a lot of these mini millionaires of around three quarters of a million, and then it just bumped over a million if equity is a primary component of that. Here's a quote that jumped out to me that's like Skippy and Dougal's show, uh, relevant stuff. Um, Talking specifically about millionaires, over 90% of these families report owning stocks either directly or through retirement accounts. 78% own their home. They benefited from extraordinary low rates, cutting debt, As a share of their incomes by 19% in 2007 to only 13% in 2022. This is all the stuff we talk about. You accumulate assets and you watch them grow. If you want to be a millionaire in this country, there's one other factor that's relevant, and that appears to be college educated plays a role here. You own stocks, you own your home, you go to college, you work hard, you make between 150 and 250K, and you're mature. Earning cycle again, not straight out of school, and you're set.
0: You're in really good shape. The accumulation is the important part, right there, as as you mentioned. Because I mean, this is saying, and this is a, I'm going to quote this out of this Wall Street Journal piece, but it it says many people got there by pursuing college degrees, steadily building retirement accounts, and purchasing homes. For the most part, they became wealthy slowly, and were well positioned when pandemic era stimulus programs boosted asset values. I'm gonna say this in a different way. You said, you talked about the accumulation over time. That's one part of it. Another is that there's the narrative that the pandemic is what created a lot of, a lot of the millionaires. And I like the part of the statement though saying they were well positioned when that happened. We talked about this before too, how you have to play the game on the field and you have to be ready for multiple boom bust cycles. Right, that come, and they were well positioned as they went into the pandemic, and then asset values went up. But it's not like they gambled during that time, and therefore, you know, rode the twenty twenty wave into their millionaire status. It was at a point where they had, they had their allocation straight, they had their savings straight, they had their homes going on, and then they were boosted during a cycle. I think it's really, really critical for folks to to hear that point. I thematically just enjoyed reading this because it's it's like back to basics stuff is what this this came down to is when we focus on the one percent it's the focus on the people that own all this this capital out there and you get the like social injustice this is important stuff but like the social injustice and you know all that kind of that narrative takes over and when you focus on lower income piece their narratives we also talked about they took over but right in the middle maybe not right in the middle toward the top but the upper middle you just got the like. Just do your thing just do what what skippy talks about all the time put whatever you can away let it sit low cost indices when interest rates are low you can buy houses right it's like all that kind of stuff and that's just basics
1: yeah it's pretty but this is that's well said because this is basically an article that looks at the people that make conservative decisions over an extended period of time. And are rewarded by being in the top ten percent of wealth in the country, in the world's richest country, effectively, right? So, like, there's a path there that requires a little patience, but it's nearly guaranteed if you do it right. Now, do we talk about free will? Did you read this article? Yeah, the L.A. Times, right? Yeah. All right. There's mm-hmm. this uh, Stanford scientist. I actually want to talk to you about it because I find it fascinating. I don't entirely believe it, but I think it's good it's a good discussion topic. That being said, it's gonna be very hard to articulate everything that's going on here. So there is a Stanford scientist, I'm trying to find his name, Robert Sapolsky, thank you, that has been researching free will, studying humans and other primates for 40 years. And he just came out with a book that argues, basically, here's a quote, uh, we've got no free will. Stop attributing stuff to us that isn't there. The, as I read, and I'll probably read this book, Dougal's, but as I read his his high-level argument, he's saying the chemical reactions that happen in our brain are a lot more meaningful than we tend to give it them credit for. And this actually goes back, what, two years ago to our interview with William Green about his brilliant book. And when you talk about all these things that, lead to bad performance like hunger and anger and all these other things that create chemical reactions in the brain that can set you off to be not your best self right on top of that the stanford professor is arguing that a lot of like how you're born how you're wired is more powerful than i think most societies give a credit so he's basically saying which is really extreme, and that's where I think the argument's tough to have. Like everything is predetermined based on how you're wired and what you're currently dealing with from a chemical perspective and how your brain reacts to that. Let me pause. I, well,
0: let me yeah just, yeah, 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 there. yeah, pause for a second. So he came out with a book a few years ago called Behave,, uh, which I have read, which looked at this as well. I've got determined on my my Libby, so my library app waiting for that jank to come in. So I will yep. redetermine once it comes in as well. Uh, he wrote Behave a few years ago, which went into the, the biology and the chemical reactions and all that stuff of, of um, what makes people behave. The other thing that I've read that is not from a biological perspective, but from a physics perspective, that's also on these lines, read a bunch about quantum physics, which if you go too deep into that, you also get to the point where free will is not a thing that necessarily exists. But it's different than I'm gonna pick on one word you used, which is predetermined.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Because there is a difference. I'm not arguing that there's no free will, by the way. I'm just yeah. talking about neither stuff. am I, to be yeah. clear. There's a no, no you don't no, don't don't back away from what you were saying. No, I'm joking, I'm joking. So <laughs> the there's a difference though, because predetermined means like you're born and your life is already mapped out. Like that that's a that's a way to, if you go to the extreme, a way to look at predetermined. What they're saying is that. The chemicals in your brain are dictating what you do and so you might say in this moment in time i'm gonna i can make decision a or decision b and what it's saying is the chemicals in your brain are actually making that decision make that decision yeah which is those two things are different but it goes into the the quantum physics part of this i'm not going to go too far but i am obsessed with this stuff i'm not obsessed i'm very interested in this stuff the quantum physics part of this says that there's a multiverse if you go deep into quantum physics there's a multiverse and so there are different versions of you that are actually making all those choices and so this version of you happens to make this choice because of the way that atoms are set up and you know blah 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 but there are different versions that also do but they both get to this conclusion of no free will i think it's absolutely fascinating but that is yeah rewind just a second so i'm Mm -hmm. actually in the quantum
1: physics view i'm living in a choose your own adventure book but there's multiple versions of me
0: choosing each adventure. No, think about if you combine these two things, this version of you that is in this universe, Earth 643, or whatever it is that you're on, this version of you is going to make the decision that it's going to make because of the way that the atoms happen to collide Yeah, sure. in this version. Yeah. But in a different version, it's like 0. 0.0001 millimeter difference in the way that something happens. And so yes. therefore... There's a slightly different decision that's made in that one. Both can stem from the world of no free will, because they both just happen to occur. But they're both in the no free will category.
1: Okay, I didn't know that we could talk quantum physics, because that's great. And uh, when are we doing our time travel show? Because we need
0: to cover some ground there. Well, if we were going to do that, we should get David Deutsch, I think is how you pronounce his name. Yeah, we should get him up on this giant and talk about some of that. It would be a seven and a half hour long part one (laughs) podcast. Love
1: it. Okay. So back to our boy, Robert (laughs) and this LA times article, here's the most fascinating thing I find. So he makes his arguments, everything Then they review some other experts in the field. I'm putting that in quotes and, uh, it, it comes to this. It seems to come to this conclusion, at least the way I read it of like, potentially humans don't have free will or less free will than we seem to think but you can't go around running a society telling people that they have no free will because then they jump to the the word i used which is not entirely true of like thinking things are predetermined and be like ah whatever it's it's all just based on how the chemicals in my brain work so i'll do whatever i want and it quickly becomes chaos isn't that so yeah. interesting that there, potentially we have less free will though you thought but you can't like tell people that.
0: There's absolutely negative value in society believing this. Like there nothing <laughs> good comes from this. The only good that can come from this is from the academic potentially planning world at like the in the abstract level of what's the future of the universe. But society believing this, come on now. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah, so uh, if you guys want to do a deep dive, the book is called Determined, A Science of Life Without Free Will. I may pick it up. You should. You should. Do you know who else put it on the Twitters this week? Uh, Michael Mobison. Your boy. Your boy. What did he say? He said, like, apparently I have to read this book. Yeah, exactly. It's a pretty pretty smart tweet. (laughs) So great. Again, he's kind of alluding to my predetermined point. I mean, telling you. All right, what you got next? Uh, well, I mean, I'm guessing you want to talk about the American consumer. I'm guessing we're
0: at your fishbowl. Oh, well, I mean, we can If that's the thing that you want to do, I'm happy to do that here. What, uh, are the,
1: what are the chemicals in your brain telling you you should do right
0: now? Talk about the American consumer. There we it's go. A, this, this is the whole thing. It's not about me. It's not about what I want. What it's about is the chemicals in my brain force me down a path of either Kathy Wood or the American consumer. <laughs> okay, to catch everybody up. Right, quick. I know that I bring this up really frequently. I think that it's an important topic and it's a it's a view that is contrarian to a broader narrative that I think sits out in the world right now in the U.S. When I say the world, I mean in the U.S. economy right now, which is why I want to bring it up more often. What I have said in the past is that I think that the American consumer is in trouble. Contrary to a lot of the the narrative and data that is raised often there's the data that's out there that says that, that the American consumer is in trouble, but most of the narrative and the data that's used to support that is saying like economy's growing, spending's healthy, blah, 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 blah. But a couple points I want to bring up here. One is 401k hardship withdrawals are up. If you look according to Vanguard, it's doubled in the last four years if you look according to fidelity it's tripled so gone from 2.1 percent of accounts are taking out withdrawals in 2018 to 6.3 percent in 2023 and that's some serious stuff like when you take out money from your 401k I'm talking a straight withdrawal I'm talking ATM to your 401k yeah the money gets tacked as if it's income you can't replace it in your 401k and generally speaking, you're going to get a 10% penalty. There's some exceptions, but generally speaking, you're going to get a 10% penalty. So that's a place of last resort, like generally. So if that's happening, an assumption that can be made, this might not be all cases because not everyone knows this probably, but the assumption that can be made is if you were going there, you've tapped out of all other sources. Mm-hmm. That's one thing. We've got auto loan delinquencies that are on the rise. We've got We've talked about before credit card debt hitting record levels, interest rates that are high. And what people come back and say is they say things like, yeah, but if you look at the uh, the amount of wealth and cash accumulation that people have, like the percent of debt or interest payments compared to that is not that high. And I'm like, look, that, you're looking at this. That's some first level thinking about a point in time. If you fast forward a few months in the future, that doesn't look like Twilio is going to. Have solid performance, exactly. Yeah, it's this inverse relationship between Twilio's stock performance.
1: (laughs) Let me push back a little. We we just did an article on more millionaires in the U.S. than ever. So, like, we 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 talk credit card balances, and the headline is a a trillion dollars in credit card debt for the first time, and that's the greatest balances ever. Well, of course it is. We're in an inflationary environment. The economy has been great for thirteen years. You also have more wealth in this country than you've ever had. There's just a a fine line here. And I struggle, I think the same as you, to know, like, neither of us like forecasting our predictions. We're not making predictions here, but we are trying to see all the data come in and figure out what that means ultimately for where the economy is headed, because that's a fascinating question that. The human brain is always trying to answer, right? I don't think it's as much doom and gloom. Like, I kind of think this is choose your own adventure in terms of you can find a narrative that supports whatever you want, whatever story
0: you want to tell about the U.S. economy. Well, right OK, I'm going to hop in there because I appreciate your pushback. And mostly where I'd start is that the narrative that the American consumer is healthy, which is a narrative that I've seen happen a bunch of this year. I'd say that is untrue
1: we just we just went through the numbers of an article yeah.
0: that says some some Americans are healthy yes i will say that yeah, some so are, Americans are top
1: healthy. 20% is the best they've ever been yeah, yes
0: okay bravo to quick math 100% minus 20% you I fill it in there. you fill it in i mean something around the, the answer like is 79.6% 79... no, <laughs> <79. laughs> yes <laughs> No, so there are American consumers that are that are healthy. Absolutely. And it's not necessarily complete doom and gloom. But I think that the Americans' consumers are healthy narrative is a dangerous one. Yeah, okay. So
1: so what you're saying,
0: let's just be
1: articulate about this. Well, your hypothesis is more like we talked about top 20%. Let's talk about bottom 20%. Bottom 20% is getting hit with inflation, record credit card debt cars that are unaffordable, housing that's unaffordable, wages that are not
0: increasing significantly. What else? What, what, I, what I'd say more so is this. It's the same thing that when I've talked about the, uh, the stock market and when it caused the stock market crashes, is not different things that are happening to cause that crash. It's something happening at a point of fragility. And so yeah. what I'd say is it's not necessarily doom and gloom, but there is a large portion of the American consumer population that is fragile. Are you saying 50%? A, I mean, what are you, like, just, I'm I, trying to. I didn't, to I didn't do here. a Michael Burry, like, pull out my ledger and start, you know, looking at everyone individual by individually. by individual. Words but have yeah. meaning, Diggles. You can't just be thrown around. Yeah. No, I will say that it is the majority, over okay. 50% of people. It, we're still at a point where most people do not have more than three months of savings. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I appreciate, I'm sorry for interrupting so
1: much. That's never going to be the case. The American consumer has shown that your average
0: person cannot have three months of savings. No, yeah, but there's a difference. So what I'm saying is you're still, because again, I'm going to rewind, put the game down, flip it and reverse it. Okay. I'm going to rewind right quick. It's not that a different thing is happening. It's that it's happening at a point of fragility. So when you have the American consumer still in that place, right? So it's not like they flush with cash mm-hmm. when you have that it's a case and you got interest rates that are higher than they've been in the recent history. You've got debt that it's at a high level. You got people feeling good about the state of employment, right? They're like, oh, labor is still in control, all that stuff. But you lose that job. And you got student loan repayments that are kicking back out. You've got credit card debt that's high. You've got auto loan delinquencies. You still only have three months. Mm-hmm. And if that labor market just flips a little bit, yeah, it's just, it's just, a, it's a, I hope we're good. It's the dangerous time. That's it. Let me ask it this way.
1: Mm-hmm. I hear you. Like, I hear you. I'm not trying to be a jerk, but are you doing anything about it? Am I? Yeah. You mean like in my everyday life? Uh all the about in your investing life, but also like more in your investing life, but I'm curious on all sides, like is it changing your behavior?
0: Uh probably only a sous-son. okay That's just to uh to show that I'm multicultural, the use of the <laughs> French word. Not not a lot in my everyday life. The reason I talk about it here is this is an investing podcast. We talk about a whole bunch of stuff like free will. But generally speaking, when it comes to the world of investing, it's looking at all the different data points that are coming in and using that to not make a, a decision for the day or maybe not even for the quarter or for the year, but just like assessing, I think where you are is important. And looking when you look at different potential opportunities, it's good to keep that in mind. And I just think that that's kind of the state of where we are generally. I don't think that, I'm not sure what there is necessarily to do. I do think that it's gonna be smart. I I would say it would be smart for the Federal Reserve to hold i do not think it's time to cut oh you're jay pal all the time Uh oh Oh, my here it
1: comes
0: (laughs) Dougal's knows all oh my goodness he's giving no no, no. no but i think i think it's smart to hold at least in november possibly even in december because there there's the potential like a little flip could change everything it could change everything we're we're saying there's a what gdp the uh, year over year was like, what a 4.9%, something like ridiculous, some wild number, right? And that's when people start Jersey Shore pumping their fists, but it easily, over the next quarter, could adjust. So all right, it's smart so let me, let yeah, me continue
1: going. this. Yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna slip, uh, shift topic slightly, but it's all related. I sent you this chart about Joshua Tree, California home prices. For those who don't know, Joshua Tree is like a, it's an Airbnb spot, effectively, because people go to see the national park. I want to make sure I say that this is disconnected from the human impacts that would come with corrections like this. But sometimes I just look at graphs like this and go, oh man, it'd be fun to see this cut in half. The reason I say that is because what happened to Joshua Tree real estate prices Going up to 2007 was it went from like 50K in the year 2000, your average single family home, all the way up to 190K. And then the great financial crisis happens. Six years later, it bottoms out at $75,000 for your average home. Mm -hmm. Then it skyrockets from there. That's like 2012 to $470,000. So the average price of a home and it looks like it just fell off a cliff the other way. It's at like 390 now and appears to be heading down. I'm gonna tie that in because the fragility you're talking about is potentially present in asset prices like that, right? Yeah,
0: possibly. It's a, so, we, we talked about this with homes before. Keep going, keep going.
1: I'm gonna tie that into a small side portfolio I have. I've talked about this on the past where you can uh, purchase uh, portions of individual single family homes and like build, you you almost build your own rental ETF. And the the reason I took some small bets there is because I was fascinated with it. But also when you do things like this, when you actually have money on the line, you learn so much more about the market so quickly. Yeah. So I have this uh, small portfolio of 28 homes, right? Dougal's the current long-term occupancy of those. I don't manage any of these. It's all outsourced is 86%. But watching this over the past couple of years has been fascinating. I have like one Airbnb property who got hit by a big storm that caused the trees to collapse that like broke the house and cut the electricity of the home. Well, (laughs) well, guess who gets no rental payments on that property? (laughs) Me. Like, it's so fun to to see the nuance of all these things. And I see it playing out in a bunch of spots, kind of all at the same time. It speaks to, I think, exactly what you're trying to articulate, that we are at a point where there's fragility and there are some of these, whether it's just Tree, California home prices or the affordability of cars, there's some of these things that feel like we're headed towards that tipping point.
0: It does feel that way. And what it means, to your not making predictions point, what it means, we don't know, Mm Mm-hmm. But there there does seem to be some kind of a tipping point that's happening. The 401k withdrawal point, the biggest takeaway for me is there are people desperate for cash. Absolutely. Yeah. Where do you get that from? 401k? Many people don't have 401ks. I mean, in a way, that's what I was gonna say. They're lucky to have a 401k. Yeah, exactly. But many people don't have that. So your home, uh predatory lending, like there's like and and then when you start to get into those the 401k with the desperate cash withdrawals so 401k selling house predatory lending whatever it might be starts Mm -hmm. spirals those are spirals that you get into and so what that because if you think about it you sell your house to get cash now you have cash but you can't buy another home so then what happens in the rental market interesting what happens to airbnb when the rental market goes like it's there's this chain and who knows like i have no idea. But it does yeah. seem like there's, there are some, there's a tipping point for some chain of something that's going to occur, um, and it looks like we're getting closer. That could all not happen, or it could happen next month, could happen next year, you know, who knows. But the snowball has not slowed in my eyes. From the first time that I started yelling about this from the consumer angle was, what, 18 months ago? Yeah, at least something a year like that. and a half. Yeah, and it hasn't slowed
1: i mean that's why i have to make fun of you though because we've both become jeremy grantham in a way talking about doom and gloom all the time
0: yeah the difference is that we're still just investing in (laughs) like the the normal stock market yeah no and i
1: think that's what i wanted to with with joshua chery california real estate prices i enjoy is the wrong word i will watch if that thing gets cut in half again Mm -hmm. which it very potentially I will enjoy watching that data come in the door because it leads to potential investing opportunities for me over the next decade. I will not enjoy the impacts that that has to your typical American family, but I feel like I'm set up to be able to ride through that, um, and make a lot of money, regardless of what asset we're talking about. Like it doesn't have to be home prices here.
0: Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. It's going to be something to watch and if a lot of people get hurt from this like it sucks greatly as it, from an investor standpoint it's going to be something to watch we don't know where i don't know where it's going to hit but it's gonna be something to watch yeah um all right so switching gears
1: a little you sent me this article called the slow death of authenticity in the attention economy which i thought was pretty enjoyable it's a short read but largely it talks about how the way musk has incentivized people to create content on Twitter or X, has turned content creation on X into a lot of people's full-time jobs. And when it becomes their full-time job, it's a lot less authentic. Because it's really like, I'm putting bread on the table. Like, so you need that, uh, I mean, a lot of these guys will tweet once a day, like clockwork, three times a day, like clockwork. And, And it's like, they're creating this content to fit a schedule to create a paycheck that is so much less authentic
0: it's really it's really interesting and i love how he i love how he says the content is more engaging like don't don't get me wrong i love the content and it like makes me cringe (laughs) right it's it's the the combination because of the authenticity Mm -hmm. piece uh and what's funny is that the content is more engaging than ever my feed is full of posts that have obviously had more effort put into it than most of what I used to see. Mega threads about AI, thoughtful, long-form narratives that could have been blog posts, carefully curated images, and super positive business updates. It's mostly engaging stuff. And therein, I think, lies the problem. It's it's brilliant because I think he's right.
1: I am a Twitter user um, because it's... in. In many cases, it's just the best place for good finance and investing content. Like I'll just say, I don't know how else to say it. But my goodness, is it engaging? And Musk's primary metric appears to be like total amount of time spent per user per day. And he will tell you without you even asking how that's the best it's ever been. But my feed has become more like cat videos and stuff. Again, like sometimes it's, Engage- sometimes it doesn't allow me to put the phone down but it's not like I'm invested in it because yeah. it's not authentic so this is from Corey Zoo and I th- I just thought he articulated this really well Um I think he's entirely right it's those unintended consequences of how you incentivize people going back to Charlie Munger basically and Twitter has changed because of the way in- the incentives changed and I'm not sure that it's positive yeah
0: we'll put this on the sub stack it's a like you said it's a short read interesting read so i got two more things to touch on one's real quick but i'm going to do the Go not quick it. one first life's lessons life's lessons we've hit on a a few of these in the past where someone said like look i'm old at this point and i just want to put down some things i've learned and this one i enjoyed a few points from this is Byron Ween, I think is how you pronounce it, from Blackstone Group.
1: I'm so glad you're bringing this up. I enjoyed this. And I don't know Byron or his history. Me neither. But these were really quality points.
0: And so there, I'm going to name, there were 20 of them. I'm going to name three that really stuck out to me, although I could really talk about all 20. And if there are others that stood out to you, we we can chat about those. Here are the three for me. The first one, and this is the first that, this is number one on the list it's about focusing on big ideas. It says, concentrate on finding a big idea that will make an impact on the people you want to influence. That's the, there's actually two points that are in this, but that's the first one. And what he's saying is put your effort into a thing that you can then create a flywheel around and like continue to invest in and make it better and better and make sure that thing is of interest to the people that you actually want to influence. That's the first point. I think that's huge. I love, I love concentration in all parts parts of life. To my detriment sometimes. Yeah. The the second point that's in here, it's at the, the last uh, phrase in it, is keep yourself at risk intellectually all the time. I really love that. Don't become complacent in your
1: own mind. I love that too. I was thinking about the way that's worded. Like, I don't know why I love it so much, but it does say basically you can't allow your thoughts to stagnate. And we, in doing so, you're at risk when your thoughts stagnate. So you have to be in a place that's uncomfortable for you intellectually in order to be growing is kind of the way I
0: read it. Exactly. Yeah, that's the way I read it too. That there's the, I I call it productive tension. And when you're at this point where something is like, it it doesn't quite feel right. So like, let me push a little bit further. That's the place where you start to grow. And it doesn't mean the thing that you're leaning into is necessarily the right thing, but it might kick off something that you hadn't thought of before. I love that one. Second one, and this is just talk your book for me, read all the time. Now, for me, it might also be listen all the time because I do a lot of audiobooks, but read all the time. Don't just do it because you're curious about something. Read actively. And this isn't just talking about books. It's talking about articles and other stuff, too. It's like just consuming content. For me, I think that that's like a big part of actually pushing on the thing that we just talked about before. Uh, just exposing. To different perspectives, different thought processes that you might not have thought about before, uh, I think is super important. So that's another one that spoke to me.
1: Agreed. I know you have one more. You, you jumped over my two favorites, so I'm going to jump in here. So yeah, go for it. Point two is network intensively, and network gets a bad connotation. Here's the next sentence: Luck plays a big. L- Role in life, and there's no better way to increase your luck than by knowing as many people as possible. So, I mentor students at the local university, and we are always talking about some fashion of this. And they are always terrified about networking in quotes. And what I tell them basically goes back to point number one for Byron here is like, if you find a big idea that you want to have an impact and that is interesting to you, it's not networking any- anymore. It's going to talk to interesting people about a topic that you share a love for. And when you do that and you cast as broad a net as possible, then luck naturally flows your way. So like those two points, you you stack them on top of each other. And oh my goodness, you just have a like incredibly fruitful career organically.
0: It's amazing. And to use a different word, because to your point, network, the word like networking does get a bad rap. To use a different word that is just right up the the line of what you're saying. Is if you if you say the, the first one that we talked about is focus on big ideas, push yourself intellectually. The second thing I would say is engage with that content. Yes, yes. That's right? the right way like to say it. Engage with the world with it. I, I like that
1: one too. Okay. Right, so and you, then yep. my absolute favorite one is point three on this list. I'm just going to read it. It speaks for itself. When you meet someone new, treat that person as a friend. Assume he or she is a winner. That will become a positive force in your life. Like that's amazing. I'm bad at that. There's a lot of times where I'm, you know, my head is elsewhere. I'm trying to solve another problem or figure out why why Dougal likes Twilio and and my brain is there. But man, if you can meet a new person, assume they're smart, a winner, treat
0: them as a friend, you're like 90% of the way there. Assume he or she is a winner. Yeah, it's, there was a, It's a different point, but maybe along the same lines, there was someone about uh, 10 to 15 years ago that was saying that when you're talking to someone, naturally, sometimes someone's face, like your own face, when you were talking to someone might be like in a a position that you might not think it is in, (laughs) right? Like you might be like frowning or, you know, like, but you might be thinking and so your face is all squinty, right? And so the thing that they said is think about or put in your mind a good attribute about that individual while they're talking and your face will naturally get to like a more approachable place. And th- it's a, that's a more like physical manifestation here, but it made me think about this here. It's just like it with the the person that you're talking to. If you assume that they are just good as a human and, and as what they do, and you assume that what they're saying is true and you assume that they know what they're talking about, like make those assumptions. And as it states, you might get burned sometimes. Yeah. But net-net, it's going to prove to be a better conversation, a better relationship. I, w- I just really like this
1: framing. Assume he or she is a winner and will become a positive force in your life. Like, that thought in the back of your head, Douglas, probably puts a smile on your face when you're yeah. doing the first introduction.
0: Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. The, the last one I'll say, and I'm skipping a lot here. I could seriously go through all of them. The last one is number 14. The hard way is always the right way. That one gives me pause
1: because generally I'm an efficiency guy. And that comes from a, my technical background and doing a lot of ridiculous math problems growing up and like those sort of things. His joke here, he's clearly a guy that uh, worked in New York City, right? It says never take shortcuts except when driving home from the Hamptons. Uh, makes me laugh. But I don't know that that one is a 100 percent truth i think in most cases trying to take shortcuts leads to more work long term than just doing it right the first time but that one
0: gives me pause what what is it that you like about it yeah I, so i don't think any of them are 100 percent. but i think you even mean you think that there are meaningful divergences from this that people should keep in mind is what i'm going to interpret what you said as i think it's better to live by this rule than to not is the way I would take it, I like it because I oftentimes with folks will say they'll be like, "Ooh, that's going to lead to a hard conversation or, oh, actually, like, I don't know. That's a hard choice. And I legitimately say back to them, that's actually not a hard conversation or a hard choice. Like it's very simple because the word hard for me, I think you could replace with something different. That's like the more uncomfortable. Mm-hmm which is different. Uh, And so it depends on how one might define hard here. But if I replace that with uncomfortable, I'd say the uncomfortable way is always the right way. It's the thing that that's a different word. It's a very different word.
1: Yeah, no, but so here's where I'd 100% agree with that. And I think this is where you're headed. When I figure out that the hard or uncomfortable thing is the right thing to do, what I've learned is you do that as quickly as possible you don't even sleep on it and and don't sleep because you're so worried about the hard thing that you have to do or the difficult or uncomfortable conversation that you have to have like or the person you potentially have to let go or like those sort of things i've found once you have clarity about that you should do it basically as soon as possible and move forward rather than have it
0: drag down your company or your mindset To pull it back to investing for a sec, the advice that we throw out, whatever you want to call it, that we throw out to the general world, buy a low-cost index fund and then forget about it, right? That general advice, that is the hard way, although it's literally the easiest thing to do. (laughs) Like, it is the easiest thing to do from a logistics perspective. It's simple, but it's really hard for people to be that disciplined. Mm -hmm. and to fight against their own emotion and behavior and all that kind of stuff. But it's the hard, like, that's why it's the hard way, which is where I, my, that's why if you, if you extend that, my interpretation of this is not the, like, find the broken glass with the most logistically difficult, inefficient thing to do. And that's right. Like that's, that could also be a definition of hard. I'm more saying like the, the thing that, that pushes boundaries that creates some discomfort or that makes you have to like push back against your own nature can often be the right way. So that's why I like it. But I hear you, I, I agree. hear you.
1: That's true. Last one, I really think this list is fun. Basically every, there's 20 points. Everything I wanna say I agree with, but it's more complicated than that. Like everything makes you think positively about bettering. Like it's just good advice. His last one is never retire. If you work forever, you can live forever i think about that slightly differently but with almost the same outcome find the thing that doesn't really feel like work where networking doesn't feel like networking and it will become part of who you are it can fit into your life with the appropriate work-life balance and then you're just living your life you're not working and living and therefore why would you ever want to retire you just will want to continue to live your life in a way that's constructed positively
0: that one also goes back to the first point yeah for me because many times the word like retirement or the verb retire is leave a specific job which is different than never stop pushing yourself intellectually or like engaging with the world because you could say, "Yeah, I'm retired," like with this person. I've left Blackstone Group. Let's just say, mm-hmm. like I, so I'm retired. But that doesn't mean that you've you've stopped like a research point of interest, or that you've stopped like contacting people to discuss important topics, or that you've stopped being on boards, or like your life doesn't have to stop because you left your job as well. So, same general point. I like it. Yeah, it's good stuff. stuff. It's good stuff. All right, my last thing is a real quick hit. But it struck me, Jamie Dimon sold shares, or he's about to sell shares. So 140 million worth. 140 million worth. So when I first saw the headline, I was like, okay, and like, does this mean because Jamie Dimon, maybe like what, two weeks ago, three weeks ago, came out with the, this is the most dangerous time the world has seen in decades, like point. And so if you start just string these things together, you get just headlines. Jamie Dimon says the world's going to end. Jamie Dimon sells shares. Oh, no, Dougal's is also saying some stuff, which they didn't put in the article. (laughs) You can interpret it that way. But actually, what had the biggest impact on me was that that this is the first time he's done it since he took over. That's what struck me. Like, more so, I just kind of went, I'm not saying that that's indicative of anything. It was just more surprising. Like, Jamie Dimon has been at the helm of of J.P. Morgan for 18 years and has never sold stock. Like, that was the surprising point. Yeah, I don't know his, anything. I don't know his yearly salary, but he's not hurting. And
1: 140 <laughs> million in in equity sales is like some pennies falling out of his pocket. So if I was in his position, and I don't want to be in his position, one maybe he needs to finance his campaign to run for president. I'm joking, but it's been rumored. <laughs> but are you? but are you? Uh, I mean, I'm not really. Uh, well, that's a different conversation. I won't make my uh, jokes there. I guess if I was in his position, I would almost constantly sell down just to diversify away risk. So it's surprising. Yeah, There probably <laughs> is some inkling of feeling like his company is fairly valued to overvalued. I mean, it just seems like if he's never sold and he's expecting turmoil and he knows rates are up, Knows the unrealized losses that all the banks are still holding. Like it's so funny because when Silicon Valley Bank collapsed, we expected that to continue, you know, like for there to be uncertainty. And it's kind of someone hit the pause button, but yeah. it's not like any of those banks are really sitting pretty, especially the regional banks. I'm not trying to cause uh, fear here, but it, they all have the same challenges that they had before, um,
0: effectively. Yeah, I suspect that there's probably some reason for him to sell. It's I think he sold like 12% of his stake or something like that. There's probably some reason. But it again, my the thing that I was struck by wasn't it, it wasn't because this could be an indication of anything. It was just more that I was so surprised to the point that you brought up before around like selling down. I was just so surprised that he's run this thing for 18 years and has never sold shares like that that was the point that was surprising to me that's a long period of time to be accumulating all these shares and to have not sold anything so that that's what i was mostly surprised by i was like what that is wild yeah i would expect like a little bit maybe not every year but after a few years like a little bit over over time it's like bezos has been selling like a billion dollars a year for a while yeah and i think that's the right approach
1: okay so I just did some quick googling. Looks like his uh, yearly compensation is only thirty-five million. So, I mean, he really
0: is struggling. Okay, yeah. So he was hurting. Yeah. That's yeah. This is look at his debt. You know, he's probably got auto loan delinquencies.
1: <laughs> <laughs> he his his pay didn't increase between twenty twenty two and twenty twenty three. So he had some plans for that normal salary bump. He had to sell one hundred and forty million in stock to make up for the fact that his salary got held. Even
0: I I can just see the the like all company meeting. He's like, in order to preserve cash, even I will take a pay freeze.
1: <laughs> yep. Some version oh. of that was said. And and there was some laughter in the crowd. Yeah. No, there was, there's some uh you got anything else? No, that's it. Uh hit us with a review if you get a chance, guys. Thank you to all the listeners worldwide. And also You can send us listener mail about the American consumer, Kathy Wood, crypto, which we haven't talked about in a while, or just about anything else. uh, SkippyDougals at gmail.com. We'll see you next week.